and the majesty of what is around us. Maybe when I say mountaintops, you have particular places that come to mind. For me, growing up, it was the Waitakere Ranges west of Auckland. From the various hilltops, you could catch the grandeur of Auckland city, uh, even more so at night, as it was a dazzling array of lights that stretched to the horizon. On the other side of the ranges, you looked down at the rugged beauty of the west coast from clifftops, with waves crashing on rocks and sea spray swirling and seabirds whirling in the rising air currents. And the sky changing to vivid red and fading to black as the sun sets and a more amazing array of lights in the night sky, speaking not of human achievement or activity, but the glory of God. And more recently, it's that sharp intake as your breath is taken away when you come north over the Bren Derwins and the Pacific Ocean spreads out before you beyond the mysterious otherworldliness of Mount Manaya and Whangarei Head. And stuck in my memory is a South Island trip where we tramped up to the Ocarito Trig on the west coast. And from there you get this wonderful panorama from the Tasman Sea meeting the sky to the north, across the rich green of the west coast rainforest, the full sweep of the southern Alps towering, snow-clad and solid, and then out again over the forest with three-mile lagoon, like a, a wonderful sapphire in the middle of the, the rich green, and then out again over the Tasman to the sky in the south. And it's no wonder that in scripture, mountaintops are associated with encounters with God. Abraham goes up and is about to sacrifice his son Isaac when he encounters the grace of God. God will provide the sacrifice. Moses on Mount Sinai, meeting with God, receives the law, and then another time goes up and comes down again, just glowing with the presence and the glory of God. Elijah on Mount Horeb, as the glory of the Lord passes by, hearing the encouragement he needs in that still, small voice. The people of Israel making the pilgrimage to the temple on Mount Zion. Come and let us go unto the mountain of the Lord and unto the house of our God. And in the New Testament, the passage that we had read today, where Jesus is transfigured before his closest disciples. And then a hill outside of Jerusalem, known as Golgotha, or the skull, where we see the glory of God revealed in Jesus' suffering and death. It is finished. And what we are seeing is expressed in the words of a Roman centurion, surely this is the Son of God. And after his resurrection on a hill, Jesus commissions his disciples and promises them that he will be with them, with us, to the end of the age, and is taken up into heaven. And in your life there are probably mountaintops that speak to you, that are emblazed on your memory like the ones that I've talked about. 
And you probably have mountaintop experiences where God has revealed himself to you when you catch something of Christ's true nature and his glory. And we're looking at some of the miracle stories in Matthew's gospel and what they say to us about the kingdom of heaven. And today, we're looking at the mountaintop transfiguration. And we're going to look at what it tells us about Jesus. And then we're going to look at what this event tells us about being a follower of Jesus and living in and living out the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew is helpful because he does not leave us on the mountaintop. But rather, the narrative goes with the disciples following Jesus back down the slope to the valley floor. And when we think of the valley floor as a metaphor, it's often the, the, the hard places of life, where they enter a world of anguish and suffering, with a faithless generation and the challenge of the little faith of the disciples. They go into a world which is very similar to the one we live in today. Well, what does the transfiguration tell us about Jesus? Well, the passage starts by saying, six days later. And so it points us to what has gone before, what happened six days before this event. And of course, Matthew's gospel comes to a major climax in chapter 16. Uh, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, you are the Son of God, the Messiah. And from that point on, Jesus starts preparing his disciples for his suffering and death, to tell them, tell them what it means for him to be the Messiah. And the rest of the gospel narrative in Matthew focuses on Jesus teaching his disciples what to do once he has left them. Then, six days later, Jesus takes his three closest companions up a hill to pray. And Jesus is changed in their sight. His face glows and his clothes glow. And he's joined by two significant characters from the Old Testament. Moses, who is the lawgiver and is seen as the archetype of a prophet. And Elijah, who is also seen in Jewish tradi tradition as the archetype of a prophet, miracle worker. And the two Old Testament figures turning up show us that the whole of the Old Testament story points us to Jesus Christ is fulfilled in Jesus. And we often think that there's a separation between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, but here these two characters are showing us that, they, that, the, you know, that the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old, that Jesus is a fulfillment of the whole story of God. And in Matthew's Gospel, we don't know what they're talking about with Jesus. But in Luke we are told that they were speaking of Jesus uh, to Jesus about his coming departure in Jerusalem. The people who resent the, represent the Hebrew scriptures are aware that the son of God must suffer and die in fulfillment of the scripture. It's why in the passion, narr passion narrative we hear repeated time and time again this happened to fulfill what was said in scripture. And the transfiguration for the disciples affirms for them and us 
at least the significant three, that their declaration about who Jesus is was right, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And of course, they still don't get it. And uh, Peter is the one that just manages to put his foot in his mouth again. You know, he just manages to fall each time. And he blurts out what's on his mind. We want to memorialize this experience. We want to build a tent for all three of you. And a shelter or a tent is saying that he wants to enshrine this encounter, this mountaintop experience. I want to stay here on top of the mountain. And Peter again finds himself being rebuked. But this time from the glowing cloud where we hear the voice of God reaffirm what we had heard at Jesus' baptism, a mix of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, a psalm that talks of God's king and a passage that talks about the suffering servant. This is my son in whom I am pleased. And then there's the addition of a command, listen to him. The true sign of discipleship and love for Jesus was not in memorializing a spiritual experience, not dwelling on the mountaintop, but as in hearing what Jesus has to say and doing it. As Jesus says in John's Gospel, if you love me, you'll pitch a tent. doesn't say that, does he? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We know it is God who spoke from the cloud because the disciples fall to the ground full of terror. And Jesus comforts them and tells them not to be afraid. And he raises their heads up again. And when they look, they see that it's only Jesus. They are now going to have to get used to seeing the glory of who Jesus is in the everyday. And ultimately, as they follow Jesus to Jerusalem and Jesus' suffering, and death. And on the way down the hill, Jesus tells them not to speak of this incident until after his resurrection. It's as if Jesus gives them a sort of spoiler alert. Don't, uh, don't ruin the story for other people, guys. Uh, that This is simply a sneak preview of what is to come. This is kind of like those um, teaser trailers to a film you really want to see coming. It's a preview of what is to come, of Jesus' resurrection glory. And you know, if you were to ask the gospel writers, well, where and when Jesus' true glory was revealed, they would not point to the transfiguration. They would point to his suffering and his crucifixion. Because you see, it is in that that Jesus is truly revealed as God's son. It is in that that the true nature of God's, God's great love for us, is made known. Bible scholars draw parallels between Jesus' death and the transfiguration. Jesus is up a hill. And he is glorified. The Gospels paint the crucifixion as a coronation. He's lifted up between two people. Here it's two Old Testament heroes. There it's between two villains. And above his head is a sign which declares him to be the Messiah. It read, the King of the Jews. And a cloud appears overhead. This time not the glowing cloud, but uh, one that turns the whole world dark. 
And Jesus is recognized as God's son, not by the voice of God, but a Gentile Roman soldier. Surely this is the son of God. It is in Jesus' death and his resurrection that we truly come to know who Jesus is and we see his great glory. What does this passage have to say to us about being followers of Jesus? Well, for many of us, I think we want to be like Peter. We want to stay on the mountaintop. We want to memorialize what we have come to know of Jesus and his glory. Uh, We want that spiritual experience that we've had, uh, that wonderful time to be where we dwell. And you know, there might be a time when you have really experienced the presence of God that is so special and wonderful for you. Uh, I often joke about people who were involved in the charismatic movement in the 1980s, and I offend you by saying this, just remember I'm one of them. And, And I often say, you know, all you need to do is just drop the first line of, Majesty, worship his majesty. You get the idea. And it's kind of like an acid flashback. You know, uh, to to the glory days. Um, Or, you know, Jesus wants wants us, uh, the church, to be characterised as being uh, a movement. Not memorialising experiences. Jesus wants the church to be a movement, to be about the mission of God in the world now and into the future. But we have this tendency to want to become an institution. And what an institution's main purpose is, is to hold on to the gains made in the past, to build tents and stay put. But Jesus calls us to go back down the hill with him. What we experience on the mountaintop and our worship as we encounter and become more aware of the very nature of Jesus is designed to come with us back down into the world, to the deep valley floors, to the depths of our human experience. And of course, the first thing that happens is the disciples have questions. They ask Jesus about the place of Elijah in the coming of the Messiah. Teachers of the law say that Elijah would come before the Messiah and make everything right, which is prophesied in Micah 4, uh, verses 5 and 6. And they saw a military and political Elijah and a military and political Messiah who would re-establish Israel as a dominant world power that would kick some Roman butt and establish Jerusalem as the capital of the world. And the disciples had just seen Elijah with Jesus. So all this sort of doesn't make sense if he's the Messiah. And Jesus affirms the scripture, but says that they had missed his coming. It was not going to be Elijah in person, but an Elijah-like figure who was going to call people to repentance and turn to God. And just like what will happen with the Messiah, people did not recognize him. They mistreated him and rejected him. And the disciples realized that he was talking of John the Baptist. Scripture was right, but their understanding of it was wrong. 
And when we have an encounter that reveals more to us about Jesus, it does not stop us having questions. What we need to do is what the disciples did and start to reframe and rethink their understanding of the world through our new knowledge of Christ. As we know more of the king and his kingdom, as we listen to him, it makes us question our worldview, our way of understanding and challenge and change it to become more in tune with Christ. You know, questions are good if they lead us to that. And then when they get down the the mountain, they are confronted again by the crowd, full of their needs and their anguish and their pain. The father comes to Jesus and pleads uh, with him to heal his son. The boy has what looks like epilepsy and finds himself being harmed, thrown into the fire and the water. And the disciples were unable to heal the boy. And Jesus reacts in two ways. First, he rebukes the faithless and perverse generation, a world that does not have faith and trust in God. But then secondly, he heals the son. It is in the midst of this faithless generation that we are called to follow Jesus and to be about the kingdom of heaven. And we see Jesus be able to bring his healing and wholeness. And then in the private, the disciples ask Jesus, well, why couldn't they deliver the boy? And Jesus does not condemn them for no faith, but rather rebukes them for their little faith. He says, if they had faith even the size of a mustard seed which is the smallest of all the garden herb seeds, then they would be able to move mountains. We often see this passage being about our amount of faith, like faith is some sort of magic commodity or elixir that we can fill ourselves up with, that somehow we can hype up enough faith. And uh, we don't really know what the disciples were doing or what was going on in their minds at the moment, at that time. It may have been that they thought they could heal the boy in their own power and their own means. I mean, in Matthew 10, hadn't Jesus given them authority over all sickness to do, and to deliver people from unclean spirits? And that they had focused on the authority instead of the one who gave it. But Jesus' rebuke is about the focus of faith, that it is in whom we put our faith that's important. A mustard seed-sized faith in Jesus Christ can move mountains because of whom the faith is placed. Remember like last week uh, when we talked about walking on water, it was when Peter took his eyes off Jesus that he began to sink. And you know, as followers of Jesus, we are called to put our faith and trust in him. When confronted by suffering and the needs of the world, to uh, to know it is Jesus who moves mountains and to put our trust in him. To look for his glory and his presence, not only on the mountaintop experiences, but on the valley floor as well. And the passage finishes with Jesus speaking again, of his coming suffering and resurrection. In fact, it's, this whole passage is bookended, beginning and end, by Jesus speaking of his coming passion. This time he adds that he'll be betrayed, and we are told that the disciples are full of grief. They are starting to understand what Jesus' messiahship will mean. 
And the gospel now changes and focuses on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, right after the transfiguration, it tells us that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And for the, the disciples following Jesus, knowing who he is, led them to follow Jesus on the road of the cross. The road of sacrifice and costly love. And it is the road that you and I are called to walk with Christ as well. The road of sacrificial love and costly service. But you know what? That is the road that leads to new life and to seeing Jesus glorified and his kingdom come. There's something amazing about mountaintops, isn't there? They are places where we're able to see clearly the vista and the majesty of what is around us, physically and spiritually. Matt Woodley says most of us like it when Jesus invites us up and then meets us on the mountaintop. We resist and even resent the call to come down into the world of ugliness and pain. But it is on those, in those mountaintop experiences, those times of worship, prayer and revelation from scripture, God speaking to us, that Jesus reveals himself more fully and we see his true glory. And through that, Jesus transforms our spiritual dullness. But then Jesus calls us back down the mountain into the world's brokenness with him. But there to keep our eyes on Jesus and his presence in that place and see his glory revealed there as well. The glory shown in his sacrificial death and resurrection. A glory that is not just a transfiguring of Jesus, but brings the transformation of the kingdom of heaven into our world. Amen. Let's pray.